Amen. Well, good morning, church family. Today we are back in Romans, and we are going to be starting chapter number two. Uh, Two weeks ago, we finished chapter number one by seeing uh, Paul unpack what a godless Gentile society looked like that had been given over to their own idolatry. And as we move into chapter 2, though, Paul isn't done helping his early readers understand the need for the gospel. So before we jump into chapter number 2, let's zoom out a bit and remember the big picture of what Paul is trying to communicate here. The book of Romans is all about the righteousness of God. But before Paul begins to help a person understand how they can experience the righteousness of God, he first wants to show them their need for the righteousness of God. We also want to remember that the church in Rome was made up of both Jewish and Gentile people, and he often addresses how they can live out the righteousness of God together, despite their deep cultural and often religious differences that these two groups of people would have experienced. And after Paul addresses the unbelieving Gentile crowd, after he shows this is how we know the Gentiles need a Savior, he then turns his attention to his Jewish audience. Now, it would have been very likely that an Israelite who would have heard what Paul was saying throughout chapter number one would have been all about it. They would have been amening Paul, Paul, saying, yeah, Paul, get those heathen Gentiles. But as he continues to unpack how all of humanity is equally guilty, he now wants to address his fellow Israelites and help them understand that God does not play favorites in this regard. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to chapter number two. I'm going to read the entire chapter for us. And then we'll begin working through the first 11 verses. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Romans chapter number 2. If you need a Bible, there should be one on the row somewhere close to you, one of the black hardback ones. Feel free to use that. But let's read Romans chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1. Paul says, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge... Do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the heroes of the law are not righteous before God, But the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even if they do not have the law. 
They show that the works of the law is written in, on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a law breaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirement, will not his uncircumcision, who is physically uncircumcised, will not, excuse me, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will judge you, who are a lawbreaker, in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Let's pray, and then we will jump into the first 11 verses of chapter number 2. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are broken and those who are searching that your word would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. And even as we contemplate a passage that focuses on your judgment, I pray that as we consider what you are saying this morning, that we would recognize that you are extending kindness, that you are extending patience, so that people may come to repentance. And I pray for those that may be listening to this sermon that have not come to faith in you, Lord, that this passage of Scripture would cause them to consider their need for you and that it would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty from their sin. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand and contemplate wondrous things from your word. I pray that your word would give us life and strength this morning. And Lord, even though this may be a heavy or complex passage, I pray that your church would delight in your word, that we would delight in your instruction, and that your word would be planted in the good soil of open and receptive hearts, so that we as your people could continue to become like righteous trees planted by flowing streams that bear fruit to bring you glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. The first thing I want to point out as we begin working through chapter 2 this morning is that God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is fair. We see this in the first three verses, but we specifically see it in verse number two. Let's revisit those first uh, three verses this morning. It, Paul says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. 
For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Paul's helping these people understand that if the same idolatry is in your heart, you are not going to get off from experiencing God's judgment. He goes on to say, now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is what? Is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Paul wants these Jewish, uh, these Jewish, his Jewish audience to understand is fair. Now, there's some debate about whether or not Paul is addressing his fellow Israelites yet. Some would argue that he doesn't address them till later on in the chapter, and that here in the beginning of chapter number two, he's just addressing moral Gentiles who have not sinned to the extent that we saw in chapter one. Uh, but based on the flow of the chapter and the fact that these are Paul's two main audiences in the church of Rome, I believe he's speaking to a Jewish audience right at the beginning of chapter number two. The way that chapter number two flows, it would just seem to me that he's addressing the Jewish audience right at the beginning of the chapter. And the point that he is making here is, just because you may not have sinned to the same extent as someone else, doesn't mean that you're not equally guilty because the same idolatry resides in your own heart. Just because a person seems to have an outward veneer of morality does not mean that they do not need a savior. Paul wants his fellow Israelites to understand just because you have a religion does not mean you do not need the gospel. Just because a person was of Jewish descent does not mean they do not need a savior. This helps us understand that just because an individual seems to be a good person doesn't mean they don't need to be saved from their sin. You'll often hear people say, well, I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. My good will outweigh my bad. And what Paul is doing in these first three chapters of Romans, he's he's helping us understand that nobody is good enough to tip those scales. And here he's helping his fellow Israelites to understand that, look, Just because you have a religion, just because you appear to be moral on the outside does not mean you do not need a Savior. And he wants the church in Rome to understand this. Even though he's presumably talking to believers, he wants his fellow Israelites to understand that, look, you didn't get saved any differently than the Gentiles did. We know the old cliche, the ground is level at the cross. And Paul wants this church to understand that whether you are a Jewish person who appears to be moral and appears to be religious or you are a Gentile who's living in wild, lewd, unrepented sin, both equally need a Savior. In fact, it was a common Jewish tradition that claimed Abraham himself sat at the gates of hell to keep all Jews out regardless of their deeds. There was a second century Christian apologetic text called Dialogue with Trifo. It was written by Justin Martyr. And in it, Justin Martyr attempts to show that Christianity is the new law for all men and to prove from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah for everyone. And in this dialogue that he wrote, he writes with a man named Trifo, who was a Jewish rabbi, and he's the person that Justin the Martyr is dialoguing with, trying to show that, look, all of us need to be saved. Now, this Rabbi Trifo, who Justin Martyr was engaging with in this work, is alleged to have said, They who are of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, of Jewish descent, shall in any case, even if they're sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. This helps us understand why the Jewish people might think that they were exempt from needing the gospel. We understand why those wicked Gentiles need to be saved, but we're of Jewish descent. 
And what Paul is doing, he's saying that, look, everyone is equally guilty before God. And when Paul said that, that would have been like dropping a hammer towards his fellow Israelites. What he is saying is, when you think you're better because of your own merits, you prove your own guilt. When you think you do not need a Savior because you think you're good enough, actually what Paul is saying is, you're you're proving your own guilt. You are demonstrating your idolatry because you're depending on your own works and not on the works of the Savior. Just because you have an outward appearance of being a good person, that does not get you a ticket into heaven. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter number 5, verses 27 and 28, you've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's easy for us, it's easy for a person to fall back on, well, I haven't cheated on my wife. Well, I haven't committed murder. But what Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount is that the sin that condemns us is actually in our hearts. Jesus made the same point in Matthew 5 that Paul is making here. We all stand guilty. That sin is in all of our hearts. It would have been very easy for Paul's Jewish audience to think that they were free from God's judgment based on their physical heritage, but their self-righteous judgment revealed that they too were also guilty. Whenever a religious person or a person who has a veneer of morality or a person who thinks they're good enough judges someone who doesn't, they are actually, Paul says, judging themselves. And what Paul is telling his fellow Israelites is, look, if you judge the Gentile worlds and you think you're good enough, you're judging yourself. Paul would later affirm that God's election of the Jewish people made their responsibility and accountability even greater. We'll see that later on in chapter number two. We see an example of King David doing this in 2 Samuel chapter number 12. In second, at this point in 2 Samuel chapter number 12, David has already committed his now infamous sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery and then he murdered Bathsheba's husband to cover it up. And in 2 Samuel chapter number 12, verses one through seven, the Bible records for us, so the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan was a prophet, somebody who would speak to the people for God, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David, after hearing the story, was infuriated with this man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. Even though David was incredibly guilty of the same action, but to a much deeper level, he was blind to his own condition. And that's what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter number two. Now we have to be careful because this does not mean that as Christians, we're not called to say things are right or wrong. 
When God's word says something is wrong, we as Christians need to stand on God's word. And Paul also says in 1 Corinthians that it's actually an act of love to judge those in your church body because we are called to help each other be more like Jesus. It's not loving to say or to ignore sin. When God's word says something is wrong, we need to stand on God's word. We need to do this with humility, but we cannot ignore sin under the guise of being not judgmental. If we don't call what God says is sin, sin, we become the people in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, who approve of, the, approve of those who practice such things. What Paul is speaking against here in Romans chapter number 2 is a person believing others are worthy of God's judgment while they themselves are not, based on their own merits. And Paul asks a rhetorical question. He asks, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? So clearly he's addressing non-believers. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? No one can honestly answer no. No one can honestly answer that question based on their own merits. No one can say, I'm good enough to escape God's judgment on my own. The prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before that our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. God sees the heart of every person regardless of how good they look on the outside. And what God looks for is not the appearance of good. What he looks for is Jesus. What he looks for is the blood of Christ. What he looks for is the righteousness of God that was imputed because of faith in him, faith that recognizes in me there is no good thing and I desperately, desperately need a savior. This helps us understand that God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is fair because the same idolatry exists in every one of our hearts. As Paul said in verse three, it's based on the truth. As Warren Wiersbe said, God does not have one standard for the Jews and another standard for the Gentiles. That would be unfair. God doesn't have a different standard for individuals whose society says are good and those that society says are not. God's judgment is fair. But we also see that God's judgment is pending in verses four and five. As we move into verses 4 and 5, Paul asks another rhetorical question. In verse 4, he says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul is helping us understand that just because these Jewish people had a religion did not excuse them from needing a Messiah. They are just as much rejecting God as the Gentiles were in chapter 1. They are presuming contempt for God's kindness. They scoff at the idea of God's wrath. They scoff at the idea of God's judgment because they haven't experienced it yet. Not realizing that the only reason they haven't experienced it yet is because God was extending kindness towards them. God was pausing the wrath. God is pausing the judgment so that he could extend kindness towards them so that they could have a chance to repent, so that they could have a chance to recognize their need for a savior. This is what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is kindly holding back his judgment so that people have a space to repent, so that people can come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul wants the truth to be very clear, and he says it in verse number five, because if you're hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. 
Paul is begging with his fellow Israelites, look, you're not escaping God's judgment just because you haven't experienced it yet. He's extending kindness. He's extending patience so that you could come to a saving faith in him. But he says, make no mistake, there is a day of wrath coming. And the more contempt you display by rejecting your need for a Messiah, he says, you're not getting off. All you're doing is storing up wrath. A person is not avoiding God's wrath if they continue to depend on themselves or their morality. They are actually storing up God's wrath, which will be revealed in the final judgment. In love, Paul's saying, it's coming. It's pending. Just because you haven't experienced it yet does not mean that it will not happen. In the Greek Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, the Greek words for hardened and unrepentant are always and exclusively used for those who are guilty of idolatry. This helps us understand this is not based on outward deeds. This is based on the idolatry of the heart. The idolatry says that my deeds are good enough. A person may not be living a wild and lewd lifestyle, but if they are depending on anything other than Jesus, Paul says they are guilty of the same idolatry. Just because a person doesn't seem as bad or seem as extreme doesn't mean that they can get out of judgment. This is an idolatry that puts self before God. I mean, think about it. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, had to get saved the same way the woman who got caught in adultery did. Paul tells these people that if you think you can escape God's judgment because you think you look better on the outside, you're wrong. Rule-keeping won't save you. You're not escaping judgment. Only Jesus will save you. Writer R. Ken Hughes said, The religiously self-righteous easily forgets his own wrong and feels that other sins are worse than his own. And so Paul is pleading, is what he's doing. He's asking these rhetorical questions. He's building his argument that all equally need a Savior. But you can sense his heart, this pleading that he's saying, don't despise God's kindness. Don't despise the riches of his kindness and his patience and his forbearance with you. He's giving you a space to repent. Take the space. Call on Jesus. Don't think that just because you're a good person, you don't need a Savior. Now let's look at verses 6 through 11 as we continue to work through this passage. Paul says in verse 6, He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobeying the truth and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And then he drops a hammer in verse 11. For there is no favoritism with God. God's not playing favorites here. This shows us that God's judgment is impartial. Now these verses almost seem contrary to what we understand about the gospel. I mean, we may read these and think, wait, didn't Paul just say in verses 16 and 17 of chapter number 1 that we're saved by God's righteousness, not our own? What happened, Paul? What are you doing? Now we have to remember, Paul's a smart guy. And that's the understatement of the century. Like, Paul was brilliant. So he's not contradicting himself here. In this first part of verse 6, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 62. The second half of Psalm 62, verse 12, 
Uh, the psalmist says, for you, God, will repay each one according to his works. So as we recognize the passage of Scripture that Paul is quoting, that passage of Scripture can help us understand Paul's intent here. In Psalm 62, the writer contrasts two groups of people. One group is the enemies of the king, who throughout the psalm we see they're violent. They take pleasure in lying. They bless with their mouths. They'll say good things, but in their hearts they're cursing people and they're full of corruption. The other group of people are those that find their rest in God alone and recognizes that their salvation comes from God and God alone. What the second group has done is found salvation in God and nothing else. We see David includes himself in this in the first two verses. He says, I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will never be shaken. So in Romans 2, verse 6, Paul is showing us that God will repay everyone for their works. Neither the unbelieving Gentile nor the unbelieving Jew has repented and sought refuge in God. Both are seeking honor in themselves. The solution then is to find rest in God alone and recognize that salvation comes from him and him alone. Paul is also helping us understand that while works do not save us, they do matter. Genuine saving faith is always followed by good works. So as we navigate verses 6 through 10, we need to recognize that this is not about salvation by faith or salvation by works. Verses 6 through 10 are about practice versus profession. He's trying to tell these religious Jewish friends of his, these religious Jewish people that just because you can say the right thing doesn't mean that's going to save you. Because in Psalm 62, we see people who would say the right thing, but it was corrupt. It wasn't real. What was real was the person who placed their faith in God alone. Being able to say the right thing doesn't save you. It's faith in Jesus that saves you. And faith in Jesus always produces good works. Genuine, saving faith produces the fruit that we see listed here, that Paul is talking about. And so when Paul lists these fruit, he's not saying you have to do this in order to be saved. He's saying, if you're saved, you're going to do this. This is how we know. <laughs> Works are evidence that a person is justified. They are not what justifies a person. Tim Keller makes a helpful clarification here. In his commentary on the book of Romans, he says, we mustn't misread Paul as saying that works need to be added to faith in order for us to be able to stand in the day of judgment. But equally, we mustn't allow our understanding of salvation by grace to diminish the challenge here. If the works of our hands are not being, in are not being changed and they are not informed by the faith we profess to have, it's right to ask whether our faith is heartfelt and real. A person who is genuinely justified will persistently seek to do good and seek the glory of God as they run the race that God has set before them. When Paul says they persistently do this, he means there is a pattern in their lifestyle. They consistently pursue the qualities that come from life with God, eternal life and glory and honor. They pursue them because they are pursuing God. What Paul is saying here in verse number 7 is very similar to what he said in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection among the dead. 
Paul isn't saying that the pursuit saves him, but what he's saying is the pursuit is the fruit that he has saved. The pursuit, the consistent pursuing, the consistent running, the persistent chasing after is evidence that God has done a work of change. God, that there is saving faith in a person's life. Works don't save us, but they do serve as evidence that a person has the faith that saves. There is glory and honor and peace to be found in the person of Jesus and living a life that is consistent with that faith. True saving faith results in obedience and godly living, even though there may be occasional faults. Paul isn't projecting that you have to be perfect, that there is never sin, that there's not going to be like, let's just be real, you're going to blow it. And Paul shows how he blows it later in Romans. I mean, read Romans 7, right? The things I know I should do, I don't do. The things I know, like, that I don't want to do, I wind up, Paul's like, I'm, I'm a mess. <laughs> but there is still a persistent pursuit there is a persistent desire for God in the things of God. That's why later in the New Testament, we see David was a man after God's own heart. David blew it royally, royally. He would have disqualified himself from pastoral ministry. Like, dude, you committed adultery and murder. <laughs> but there was a persistent pursuit of God. When God measures the deeds of the Jews... He found them to be as wicked as the Gentiles because they were driven by idolatry, not by faith. They were driven by, well, we're good enough. They were driven by their heritage. They were driven by their religion. They were not driven by saving faith in Jesus. The fact that the Jews occasionally celebrated a feast or even regularly honored the Sabbath day did not change the fact that their consistent daily life was one of disobedience to God. God's blessing did not lead them to repentance. The consistent disobedience to God was a rejection of the gospel. So if a person is saved and that faith is genuine, these works are manifested. And because they're saved, they're going to receive eternal life. But Paul says, if not, he gives a very clear warning, which is, which is itself an act of grace and love. Paul is shooting straight with any Jewish person who might be tempted to think they didn't need Jesus because they're Jewish, because of their heritage, or because of their religion. In verse number eight, the self-seeking we see means to seek to be your own Lord and Savior. It means you set yourself up as the standard. You say, I am good enough based on what I can do. Disobeying the truth is a refusal to submit to God's truth. So when a person says, I am good enough to make it on my own, I can stand before God's judgment based on my own merits, they are disobeying the truth that God says we are all condemned. They are disobeying the truth that says all are equally in need of a Savior. The truth is that they need God. And their disobeying the truth is ultimately a rejection of the gospel. And Paul says the result will be wrath and anger. Affliction and distress. And he says, and just like the gospel went to the Jewish people first, judgment will also come to the Jewish people first. Because as he says in 2.11, there is no favoritism with God. God's judgment is impartial. Just like anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, anyone who rejects the name of the Lord will be judged. My friend, don't rely on your own merits. Don't rely on, well, my good outweighs my bad. 
None of us are good enough to tip that scale. None of us can claim to be good enough. Now, I know passages on the judgment of God are heavy and complex, but the reality Paul is unfolding for us here is what makes the cross so amazing. (laughs) Jesus absorbed the wrath for all who would believe. If you're here and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, friend, let me encourage you to strongly consider your relationship with God. None of us have any righteousness of our own to gain favor with God. The brutal reality is that we all stand condemned. But the fact is, if you're hearing this message, God is extending kindness towards you, and he is inviting you to turn to him. The fact that you're alive says God is giving you an opportunity to experience eternal life, to experience glory and honor, to experience the ultimate satisfaction that your heart so desperately craves that leads you to do all kinds of things you never thought you would do. You can find all the sense of longing and anything your heart craves is meant to point you towards the need that you, have, you, you need a Savior and you have one. His name is Jesus If you're listening to this today, if you're still breathing, if you're still on this side of the dirt, God is extending kindness towards you. He is giving you a chance to repent and place your faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us very plainly, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just like God's judgment is impartial, his salvation is also impartial. (laughs) It's exclusive in the sense that you can only get it through Jesus, but it's the most inclusive reality you will ever see. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter what you did last night. You can come to Jesus and be saved. 